Welcome to Deep Dive Coaching for Creatives with me, Coach Cammie. In each episode, I'll be covering the basics of deep inner work, the hardest and most important work you can possibly do for yourself. I have been where you are, stuck with self-limiting beliefs and an inner critic on overdrive and no idea how to get past them. I've done this work on myself, for myself. I know how hard it is, but I want to make it easier for you and help you become your best self. You deserve it. My guest for this episode is Daniel Mendez. He has described himself as a corporate communications professional, but he is so much more than that. He's a cancer survivor, a musician, an immigrant, a husband and father, an unlikely little league baseball coach. But most importantly, Danielle is a community builder. You'll hear how all these things tie in together toward the end of the episode. Ready to dive deep? I am so excited for our talk today. Thank you so much, Danielle, for joining me. I would, I would love for our listeners to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell me a little bit first about your background and then about what you do now? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Cami, for having me today. Super excited about this conversation. And I'm Daniel Mendez. I'm originally from Chile. I moved to the U.S. in 2016 and currently live in central New Jersey. I work in corporate communications. That's my background is in journalism and communication science. I started my career in, in the mining industry in Chile. Then moving uh, into the U.S., I started working in engineering and construction and then in the oil and gas industry. Wow. And then when the pandemic started, I completely uh, switched gears and moved to the East Coast to uh, and started working in, in healthcare companies. Uh, and that's what I'm currently doing now. I am... Um, Bilingual in English and Spanish. I have two kids and I'm, I'm happily married to Kendall. Actually, this year we're celebrating 10 years. Oh, uh, congratulations. Of, of marriage. Thank you. And I'm also a cancer survivor. Really? Um, yes. I was diagnosed with testicular cancer when I was 18 years old in 2003. Wow. Uh, so actually this year is also my 20th anniversary being in, in remission. That's so, and, wow. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, super excited. I honestly never thought I was going to make it this far. So <laughs> I'm super excited. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you go through something like that, especially you said you were 18. I was 18. Yeah. I bet that changed your outlook considerably at the time. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a rough time. I mean, uh, going through cancer at any age is, is never an easy thing. And I feel like when, when you're 18 and you have the type of cancer that I had, there's a lot that comes with it, right? First of all, you know, it was my first year of college. I was just getting started in, in you know, this new world of meeting new people and <clears throat> getting out of high school and, you know, getting into all the partying and, and just having fun and having a lot of dreams for the future, right? Like plans, what, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to take this career to. And suddenly, you know, because that's how it happens, you know, most of the time is from one week to the other, you know, you're in college, you're, you're going to classes and, and going to parties and drinking with your friends. And then the next week, you're having surgery and in two weeks you start chemotherapy, you know? 
and it's just so sudden and um, I can only imagine definitely you know looking back to to that time I honestly it, it's a blur you know like I barely remember everything that happened during that time I was in uh, going to chemo for about five months so I had four rounds of chemotherapy and also surgery so yeah I mean it, it was uh, super rough and and definitely after completing the chemotherapy process and getting you know the first clear CT scan and and celebrating you know that you made it there's a whole process that comes after that you know especially at that age where you know you kind of question like why did this happen to me and you yeah. know you go from like the the craziness of like being diagnosed with cancer being treated to overcome cancer and then you feel you made it you kind of expect that life is going to change automatically you know the flowers are going to be brighter <laughs> and the sky is going to be blue every day and you know everything is going to be beautiful but then suddenly you get hit in the face with reality that just going back to what you were before you know I went back to classes. I went back to the same friends. I went back to doing my normal routine. And I got into a very deep, deep, dark hole, you know, of maybe I was supposed to die, you know. Um, And it took a while, you know, and and definitely a lot of processing and, and a lot of help to get to a point where I realized that nothing was going to change if I didn't change mm-hmm. my perspective and appreciate it being alive. So yeah, all of that happened yeah. between 18 and 20. Wow. <laughs> so uh, it was, it was a lot, but Hey, yeah. Well, and I can imagine, yeah. When we think of 18 year olds, I had, you know, my, my kids are past that now, but I think the idea they had was I'm invincible or all anything bad that's not going to happen to me that that's the outside world that's somebody else that's somebody else's story and if it happens to you and you're in the middle of it you're you're in deal with it mode and then what comes after i can't even imagine the the processing that you had to go through in in dealing with all that and and have it just thrust upon you so suddenly what do you think were the major gifts from that experience? Well, I mean, it sounds a little cliche, but definitely, you know, appreciate your life and and not taking things for granted. How has that shown up for you? How do you demonstrate that? It's very easy to get eaten by routine and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and get trapped, especially when you're working, you know, in a in corporate America, right? Oh, yeah. um, and and having that job that <laughs> kind of never stops. And when I started working in in, in Chile, I was twenty one. Was uh, after graduated from school, I was lucky that I I landed a job early and started working in the mining industry. And 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 it's a very demanding field, you know, like especially in Chile where mines are not really close to any city whatsoever like they're (laughs) normally like in the middle of the andes you know where it looks literally like mars right in the middle of the atacama (laughs) desert and all those operations are like you have to stay there you know so you're not home 
it takes a big toll on, on your life, right? But when you're single and young, you know, you don't really care about those things. And I've found that, you know, looking back, the whole cancer thing was very recent. You know, I was still running away from a lot of things. Mm. And and I feel that that really helped me, you know, to hide from <laughs> everything and just like focus on working, doing, you know, growing my career and, and taking more responsibility and all of that. Was there processing time while you were away? While you were doing your, yeah. your job? Were you processing or were you just avoiding? I think a little bit of both. There were certainly, you know, th- that kind of self-therapy of staying busy and just like, yeah, I don't I don't need to worry about this thing now. Like, uh-huh. I'm just going to keep going. Because I, I kind of felt that, again, going back to what you said, when you're young, you kind of feel in- invincible, right? And and I was, I, I think I already survived cancer. I just need to live now as fast as I can because I don't know if it's going to come back. It can ruin everything. So let's just get it on, you know? <laughs> uh, and then, you know, uh, meeting, meeting my wife and, and definitely having kids uh, helped me change that perspective. And, and uh, today, the way that appreciating life shows up is that I want to live as long as I can, you know, like I want to be here for them in good health, spend as much time as I can with them. And, and, and hopefully without having them to worry about my health, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and under that, you know, new view of life, I feel that my, my decision-making process has changed, you know, like I prioritize other things. I, I value time, quality time with them versus just staying busy for just the sake of staying busy, you know, and avoiding mm-hmm. things. Yeah. The gifts of the pandemic that most people gleaned was that reprioritization. But it sounds like you already had those priorities straight. Did the pandemic change your perception at all? I, I always like to talk about the pandemic, starting from a point of really understanding how privileged I was and, and my family was like I had a job. My wife had a job. We kept working through the pandemic and we were able to do that from home. Mm. And our kids were young at that point that we actually were able to keep them both home. My wife is also a teacher. So she took, you know, as a responsibility to continue the education of of our boys, you know, during that time and reinforce whatever they were missing out from the classroom you know, so we were in a position that was very privileged. And mm-hmm. I absolutely acknowledge that it was not the same for everybody. Yeah, and for yeah. some people, it was extremely difficult. Yeah. Now, that said, with that, uh, you know, position of privilege, definitely uh, the pandemic reinforced the fact that we needed to prioritize life and more than anything, work together to build a community that it's going to ensure safety yeah. and, and and good health for everybody. Yeah. And at that time, we were living in Texas. So oh, okay, <laughs> it, okay. 
I loved my time living in Houston, in particular in Sugarland, uh, a suburb of, of the Houston area. Beautiful people, beautiful town, and just incredible experiences there. But living the pandemic in Texas, especially at the beginning, it was challenging. Telling you that, you know, May 2020, we were preparing to go back to the office. Mm-hmm. And that was just like... <laughs> When I tell that to my colleagues here in New Jersey, they're like, what? (laughs) That's crazy. So that was one of the reasons why we decided to move, uh, because it it really it it was very scary. Right. But uh, going back to your question, you know, the fact that we were able to to be in a pod, you know, with the kids and my wife 24 seven. For really for us, because I was very paranoid about the whole thing. And I told my wife, look, we are going to stay inside and we are going to be <laughs> by ourselves until there, there is a vaccine. And I trust that there will be a vaccine soon. Mm-hmm. I was very naive to think that it, that was going to happen within a year. <laughs> I mean, the, the the pharmaceutical industry and the collaborations there did a fantastic job in bringing it within two years, which is is really amazing. Yeah. And as soon as we got vaccinated, you know, uh, we kind of went back to to our normal routine of like engaging with more people and being yeah. more social. But we still, you know, uh, even now that we are mostly living a normal life, mm-hmm. normal to pre-pandemic, you know, standards, we still keep a lot of the things that we used to do. Like we still go on walks every uh, every day after dinner and we spend that time, you know, during the weekend. Sometimes we just stay inside the four of us and, and then we do things. We started th- this thing with the boys uh, making murals. You oh, know, nice. uh, during the pandemic, uh, we bought this butcher paper, you know, oh, rolls yes. and just put them around, you know, the room and started coloring and, and just, you know, making pictures of what we wanted to do at that time that we couldn't do anything. And we still do, do those kind of things. Uh, awesome. My wife and I started uh, puzzling <laughs> during the pandemic. Something that she never did before, like just, you know, putting together puzzles. We started with 500 pieces, then 1,000. And we (laughs) still do that. Like we have like a hundred and something puzzles in the, in the storage, you know, that uh, we still work on uh, every once in a while. So there's a lot of things that we kept from that time because we really appreciated the fact that we were giving the gift of time. And the gift of being spending time together and strengthening our relationship as a family, you know, and and that was super important. And it's something that now, you know, talking to my wife about it, I think we both agree that what one, we were super lucky Two, somewhat the pandemic became a gift in many ways for us as a family. Yeah, there were lots of pearls to be gleaned from the the pandemic experience. I dodged the the bullet for a long time. I was vaccinated and boosted, and I caught COVID in February of this year. And I had it for about eight weeks, 10 weeks, and I'm still not back up 100%. I have a good friend of mine who uh, we spoke last week. He said he was in month seven and he had to quit his job because of the of long covid effects long were COVID. so profound yeah. so i'm i'm grateful every day that 
number one, I recovered enough to function. And number two, that, you know, it didn't, it didn't kill me. Exactly right. I mean, we got it December 2022, the weekend of Christmas, the holidays. It was going to be the first holiday season, you know, after the pandemic that we were going to have like some sort of normalcy during that time. So we're really looking forward to it. (laughs) But I got it first, then my wife got it, and then the two boys got it. And uh, yeah, we were lucky that we didn't get um, long COVID. It it was rough, though. Like even after three vaccinations, we still had a pretty rough time. Um, and, And it was like two weeks that we were miserable <laughs> yeah but yeah we we're very very lucky that uh we got it so late after the vaccine yeah. and way after you know we thought we were gonna get it at some point like yeah yeah uh, it was just yeah now crazy to think about it and i'm glad it's mutated enough to be not so deadly that's reassuring yes yeah absolutely awesome i see in the studio behind you there's some guitars hanging on the wall uh i assume you're a musician I don't know if I would describe myself as a musician. You, you uh, play guitar, yes? I, <laughs> that makes I, you a yeah. musician. So, yeah, first of all, yeah, I play guitar. And, and it's something that, again, during the pandemic, music really helped me to stay sane. And it helped me heal a lot. And I think music has that power, you know, of, mm-hmm. of it's this magic, right, that awakes some parts uh, within you that you don't really know they exist. And probably music is one of the biggest gifts that my dad gave me. Mm. And when I say that, you would think, oh, his dad is a musician. And, you know, like he, no, he can't play anything. Like he (laughs) has, oh my gosh, like uh, a faucet dripping in the kitchen has more rhythm than my dad probably. (laughs) But he loves music and... It was always his dream to play guitar and he didn't have the the resources, you know, growing up. Uh, he was uh, from a very humble background and having a guitar was uh, was something that was not available to him when, when he was growing up. But he always wanted to play guitar. So he turned the frustration of never being able to learn guitar to really push me to play guitar. And <laughs> I wanted to play soccer and you know be with my friends at the beach growing up and he was like no you're going to music school and I was like no I hate this <laughs> and you know it was second grade so just imagine oh, that it was like and also it was it was after school so I had to go to school and then go to music school for two more hours and I was oh. like yeah not ideal but one of the best things that happened to me with that is that he wanted to sign me up for classical guitar lessons and that class was filled at the point that when he took me. So the, the the teacher there was like, well, but we have this other, you know, class that it's, they, they call it um, folklore instruments, uh, instrumentos andinos. Uh, so it's like all, you know, the pan flute and charango and guitar and, you know, the the drums. And so it was like this whole thing. And the cool thing was that you went into that class without an idea of what you wanted to play. Like you would just go and dive in. Like there were so many options that yeah, you could get. Like, 
it was so amazing to see that, especially seeing people being so talented in so many instruments, right? Yeah. So I started falling in love with it. It was really exciting the first time that I started playing guitar and playing all of the instruments. And then we had this big concert, you know, with all the kids. And, and that was like, oh, my God, I love this. And and then, you know, again, that was second grade. I started growing uh, older. I, I started you know, liking electric guitar and rock and roll a little more. And in eighth grade, I joined my first band. Hey, wait, and eighth grade? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And all of my uh, bandmates, they were older than me. So they were in either almost out of high school. So I was always the youngest. And that's when my dad started regretting getting <laughs> me into music <laughs> classes. Because we started playing in bars and playing in, in pubs, you know, and clubs. And I was, you know, in, in Chile, you can start drinking at 18 to enter these places. You know, a lot of times you need to be 18 to uh, if they're going to be selling alcohol. Right. So I was always the problem. Like they had to talk to the owners of the bars like, yeah, he's going to be playing, but, you know, he's not going to drink. So don't worry about it. And <laughs> and he just he was like, I can't believe you're doing this. But. It was such a, a fun time and that band, they're still in Chile. So that's when we separated, but we still are in, t- in touch during the pandemic. We were recording remotely. And actually that's how this started because I needed a place to start playing. <laughs> and and I, I, because my wife was just sick of hearing me play in the laundry room, super loud. <laughs> so- um, What kind of music so do you play? Started. These days, you know, it's just uh, me, uh, myself and I, you know, playing. Uh, but what, I, what kind of, I, you said you were recording yeah. music with your bandmates. What kind of music were you? Yeah, so with? we used to play like funk rock, that band in particular. So big fans of Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Infectious Grooves. You know, there's Fun. a bunch of bands in, in in Chile and South America that we really love too, like Chancho en Piedra, Los Tetas, and Los Amigos Invisibles, great bands. And we did mostly covers, but uh, we also recorded our own songs. We had a demo at some point, and how fun! Um, yeah, yeah. So so that that was we used to record, but by myself, I play you know more like everything and anything really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> What has music taught you? What has playing music taught you? So many things. <laughs> so many things come to mind. The first thing probably is, you know, what I mentioned that, you know, the healing power of music. And I, mean, um, I would love to know how, how, what your experience has been with healing with music. It, it has a little bit of everything. I, I think, first of all, Music creates communities and brings people together. And from that perspective, having the opportunity to to express yourself through an instrument or through your voice by singing and giving that gift to someone else that can find it appealing and join into that magic, right? Yeah. It's it, from that. It's just you know, it, it's great. Like. I always uh, remember Dave Grohl, you know, from the Foo Fighters said, you know, it's amazing to go on stage and sing a song that I wrote 
and then seeing 75,000 people singing that same song, but there's 75,000 reasons why those people are singing that song and, and they feel that song. And, and that's exactly right. I mean, it, it's it's just uh, an amazing thing when you grab a guitar and, and, and then you sit down with a couple of friends and start playing and then people come. My, <laughs> I remember again, my dad, when I was crying one time, I wanted to go to play soccer. I want to play soccer. And I, I didn't want to go to, to music lessons. He was like, listen to me. When you grow up, there's going to be two types of people. There are people that are going to be playing soccer and there's going to be people that are going to have a guitar. If you sit down with a guitar, everybody's going to be around you singing and they're not going to be, you know, where the soccer ball is. I don't know how true that is. I mean, <laughs> soccer is a, it's a force and it brings so many people together. It's an additional but, community. But he was right about that. Like, no matter where you go, like if you're with a guitar and just sit down and start singing, people are either going to stop and listen to you or they're going to join you in the song if they know it. And, and it creates that magic. I and that I find it extremely healing especially if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're stressed out, like it can be a little silly, but sometimes just going in the car and sing out loud to the best song when you're driving by yourself to the office is such a relief. Like a, a, it, it gets all the stress out. And actually that's one of the things that I missed the most when I was you know, in the pandemic working from home and I didn't have my commute. I was like, Damn, like that, that was the time when I used to sing, like in the shower, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but in the car. And, and I just find that songs can just bring so many emotions and feelings that, yeah. you know, are, are, it's just a fantastic thing. And, and yeah. the other thing is that, again, going back to community, it has given me a lot of skills that I normally use now in my work too. Being in a band especially that early, taught me a lot about trust and a lot about building strong relationships. And again, sounds a little corny, but when you're on stage, right? And I was the lead singer. Sometimes I play guitar too, you know, but then I have the bass player, the drummer, you know, and the other guitar player. And you're like, collaborating on stage like if if one of us don't do what they're supposed to do everything just goes to hell and that trust of like especially when you're so young is like look we're gonna play 10 songs we're gonna go on that stage and with people that we don't know and it's gonna be great and people are gonna sing it and they're gonna have fun that was a lot of confidence that do you think about it, you know, yeah. but also that confidence came from trusting your bandmates, you know, yeah. and just like believing that they had your back and yeah. you had theirs. Right. Something tells and, me that in in a work environment that you still operate the same way. Absolutely. I mean, I consider myself a team player and I love having that like when someone is really good at something and then you find this other person that is really good at something, you know, and then you build like this dream team that makes like everything when you're at work, you know? Yeah. And, well, and to and, know and, that, that your boss has your back, your coworkers have your back, that, that kind of trust is rare in a business environment. Definitely. But that's the thing. Like, I think it's so important, you know, to bring 
that to the table because trust doesn't happen by itself. Trust is built by people. Trust but doesn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> it's not. You, you can't expect, you know, to just walk in the room and, you know, everybody's going to have your back like that. It's not the way it works. You have to put in the work. You have to build those relationships and you have to find the beauty in what everyone brings to the table. Yeah, it is. You know, you said a, you said an important word. You said relationship because that kind of trust, whether you're in a band or in a in a boardroom, that kind of trust is relational. It's not transactional when you're relying on your bandmates to know their part, to know their role. It's very much relational. And in a community, it's always relational. So all these things kind of tie in together. Exactly right. And and I mean, it's amazing to see. So the last time that uh, me and my band played together live <laughs> in person was October 2015. Oh, my goodness. And before that, because I was living in another city, uh, you know, we hadn't played together for about five years. So, you know, it was from 2010. And then, you know, we organized this uh, little concert before I moved to the U.S. Actually, that that was the reason Mm -hmm. why we got together again. So it's been like around five years since the last time we played before 2015. I landed in in Iquique, where bandmate lives, that morning. We rehearsed, you know, a couple hours before the concert, and then we went on stage. Wow. The chemistry was still there oh, after wow. five years of not playing. And it's that thing when you just look at each other, you know, when, you know, the, the breaks are, and then when you're going to finish a song or when there's going to be a pause, like, it's just this communication mm-hmm. that you build it and it just never goes away. Yeah. It's a, it's a firm foundation of relationships. Exactly. And I think that's how cultures within organizations are built too. And Mm -hmm. they remain for generations. So if you're able to build this work environment, it's built in very strong values and it, creates an environment where people are encouraged to interact, build relationships and build trust that carries on no matter who is there. Oh yeah. What kinds of things do you do to build that kind of trust in the teams that you work in? Is it just daily activity, daily communication, or are there specific things that you do intentionally to build that trust? I think there's a bunch of things, right? And, and some are very little. Some definitely require a little more effort, right? So first of all, I try to be respectful of people coming into the office or a work environment where they don't really want to make friends. They're there to work, right? And and they're they're nice to to people as coworkers, but they don't drink the Kool Aid about we are family here. No, I don't think companies are families. I do think that you can have and and make the best friends, you know, mm-hmm. in a work environment if you are lucky enough, right? Yeah, it may not but, be a family, but it's definitely a community. Exactly. And it's a team. Yeah. That's a, the difference between a group and a team, right? So one of the, 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 the key things that I think I I try to prioritize, you know, is is to be uh, consistent, to be to be open about 
my capabilities, what I can do, what I cannot do. And if there's something to be delivered, you know, to be very straightforward about what's possible, right? So just keep it very realistic. I'm the kind of person that really, <laughs> as you can tell, like I can talk a lot. <laughs> I, I try to express, you know, what I feel and, and how I feel about things so that, you know, there are no surprises and 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 people you know, understand that what they see is what they get. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, this is me. This is what I do. This is what I can do for you. If anything changes, you will hear about it. So to keep them appraised and keep them, you know, engaged all the time. Another thing that I found to be super helpful in building relationships is to keep that open communication. And, And it's funny because... It's a cultural thing. In Chile, d- don't get me wrong. I love living here. I've met so many amazing people, wonderful people. But the 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 culture in South America is way more warm than it's here in the US. Like, you mm-hmm. know. And again, it, it just depends. Like if you go to San Antonio in Texas, people were like my people, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's so like a lively community and, and hugs and, you know, all of that. That's how we are in, in, in South America. And every conversation in Chile starts with, it, it doesn't matter what it is. Like if it's work, if it's uh, in the street, if it's whatever, if you know that person or not, you're going to say, hola, como esta? <laughs> it's like, yeah. hey, how are you doing? Yeah. And it's asked with the expectation that you really do want an answer, not the, the canned fine. Right. And and that starts a conversation. The first thing that happened when I started working in the U.S. is that, and, and probably some coworkers can confirm this, every time that I ping people, you know, in instant messaging or even in, via email, I start with, hi, how are you doing? Yeah. Or how are you? And the problem is that, some people find that annoying if I do it every day, you know, <laughs> and one person one time asked me, like, it's like, do you know that you don't have to start every every, you know, if you need something from me, you don't need to ask me how I am. Just ask me what you need. You know, yeah. the U.S. culture supports <clears throat> a transactional, any transactional relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And he hit me in the face. You know, it was like, whoa. <laughs> You know, I, I didn't take it like, like, you know, that, that people was, that person was being rude or anything. It was like, this is different. And I need to understand that. And mm-hmm. at some point I was like, maybe I should stop doing that. But then I was like, no, this is me, you know, like, yeah. I'm genuinely interested in you telling me <laughs> how you are, you know, and, and what are you up to? And I've found that a lot of people think that having that personal connection with people, it's, unproductive it's like oh this takes time and we're here to work and because you're asking me how i am it's gonna take me five minutes of my time to answer and then you know we're gonna get into this longer conversation where i could be doing something else my thought is that in the long run building that relationship is actually makes you more productive because you build that trust and at some point people trust you that much that a lot of times you're not going to have to ask a question. Mm-hmm. You're going to do it and they're going to back you up, you know, exactly. because they know you and they know how you work yeah. and they can trust you, yeah. you know? So, so I think that's another little thing that in the end, I feel it has a, a, an impact. 
And the third thing is that I try to be a good connector. Like, and, and that is something that uh, actually I do a lot in my LinkedIn. Um, yeah, I've with, seen all your, the job posts that you repost, job openings for communications jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that that started, you know, when I moved to the U.S. in 2016, I came from Chile and, and, and I left everything there. We literally sold everything we had. I left my family there, you know, uh, my mom, dad and cousins and everything. I left my coworkers. I left my classmates from college. I left everything. So when I came here, I never thought about applying for jobs without a network. I never had to. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I graduated from, from, from college. I had an internship. I met my first boss during that internship. He offered me a job. I never interviewed for it. And after that, I really didn't interview for any other job because it was like jumping from person to person that knew me and they offered me a job and hey that was great so when i came to the u.s i had to rebuild that network from scratch and applying for jobs without having anyone to advocate for you or like tell people like hey this dude it's okay like he can work he's a hard worker you know he he will deliver for you no one could say that about me and the problem also was that a lot of the people that i worked in chile they don't speak English, you know, so I couldn't use them as as a, a reference, you know, because they can communicate with the hiring manager here. So that's when I started attending a ton of, you know, dinners and breakfast and networking happy hours and all networking events that I was able to to attend in the uh, Princeton area here. But also I started doing a lot of building my networking in LinkedIn because at that point my network was in Chile. So I started to connect with people. I started following people and I ended up landing a job in April, 2016, moved to DC. And after I landed that first job in the US, I said to myself, like, I will never stop networking because it was so hard. Yeah. And I need people to back me up. Yeah. So I continue to do that regularly, you know, connect with people, even if I move to another job or another location, I always try to stay in touch with people, you know, and then suddenly 2022 came and uh, the company I was working uh, before, uh, they had a reorg, you know, and unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues were let go. And in talking to them and asking them, how can I help? A lot of them told me, like, I've been in this company, you know, for 15, 20 years my network is here. Like, I don't have a network outside. I don't even know where to start, you know, applying, like who to reach out to. And I was like, well, now that I think about it, I do see a lot of posts about jobs that come in my network from people that I started following in 2016, you know, and people I've met. So I'll start posting under this topic, comms jobs. So follow that is that's going to give you visibility. Yeah, that's so I started doing that last year and suddenly, you know, a lot of people started following me and messaging me like, hey, this is so great. Thank you so much for bringing visibility to this. And then it got even better when people were like, hey, I landed a job because I saw it, you know, in your feed. That's awesome. Yeah, that was like such a great feel. I was like, my God, like I actually helped someone today, you know, Mm -hmm. and what I try to do, I would never go to the job stab in LinkedIn and just grab whatever opening is out there and share it. 
what I do is that I share the post of someone in my network talking about that opening. Yeah. So it's either the hiring manager saying, hey, I just opened this role in my team. Yeah. Apply, message me if you have any questions. Or, hey, I'm a recruiter and I'm recruiting for this role. Or, hey, my team is recruiting yeah. and here's a job on my company and I will be happy to refer you. So what I do is to share those so that people start from a human connection. Yeah. Again, you know? it's relational and not transactional. Exactly. You know, and, and it's just connected with that person. I mean, if someone is posting in LinkedIn about a job that they're trying to fill in their organization, they're looking to connect. If not, why would you do that? Yeah. So I always tell people, you know, connect with them, like mm-hmm. reach out, say, hey, I came across this post that you made about your this role. And I think it's super interesting. Will you be open to connect with me? You yeah. know? In the meantime, go forward and apply, but also make that human connection. So I always try to build that, like offer people the opportunity to connect with each other and know about each other. You know, for me, one of the most fulfilling things of getting involved in all this networking stuff is introducing people to other people. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, and and actually that's how we got connected through Rachel. We had a a discussion through Icology, which is a great community for uh, internal communicators. And, um, and, and then she put me in contact with you. She was like, I think you guys are going to hit it off because you're good juju people. I was like, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So Sorry, that was a really long answer. No, that's some great advice on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is such an underutilized tool for people who are just getting into it. They don't understand how best to use it. So I think this is great advice. And and following that hashtag comms jobs. That's um, right. For communication. And I, I repost every single job opening I see from my network. You know, I don't go hunting on the jobs tab either. I reposting things that my network shares. All kinds of, uh, not just communication, art director, graphic design, UX design, UX research, uh, all all of those kinds of jobs I always repost. Yeah, no, it's such a little thing that you can do Mm -hmm. and it's so helpful to so many people and, you know. It's it's just paying it forward, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a story that you told me a while back, and I would love for you to share this story with our listeners about your time as a baseball coach. Oh, <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's um, it's still going actually. It's, it's oh, that's not over fantastic. Yet. Yeah, we have one more game. We have one more game. So let me back up. Um, so, first of all, I'm the least athletic person that you will ever know. Because I because love- you took the music lessons and not the soccer. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> so, I enjoy walks, you know, in the woods. I love hiking, you know, and just uh, walk my dog with, with the family. That's one of the best things that we do. Other than that, I just, I'm terrible at sports. But my sons, both of them, they're, you know, they like sports and they like it because there's a lot of kids there. Exactly the reason why I wanted to go play soccer. So I'm all for it. You know, definitely support it. So my oldest plays tennis and the youngest really likes baseball. So he started with T-ball two years ago. And my wife was actually an assistant coach uh, with that uh, team. 
And after that, last year, I he moved into the next level. And I went there and I was just helping out, you know, like picking the balls and getting the bats, you know, like the little things. So this year for this season, my son was like, I asked him, do you want to sign up for baseball again? And he's like, I want to, but I want you to be a coach. And mind you, I don't, in Chile, baseball is not a, a big sport. There's nothing like the culture here around baseball. I know nothing about baseball. Nothing. So I tell him, like, look, I'm happy to be an assistant coach and I, I can, you know, be in the dugout with you and all that. But I I don't think I can be the head coach. He's like, it's fine. I mean, I, I just want you to be there. It's like, all right. So I sign him up and I volunteer as an assistant coach. And I got the the gig, right? <laughs> so they selected a head coach. And, and then, you know, for the first uh, practice, we showed up, everyone introduced and the kids from the head coach were extremely good. <laughs> so the the president of the league came and was like, you know, you guys can't be with the rookies where my son is. Like, you need to move up because, you know, you're, you're in a higher level. So the head coach ended up moving to the other team, to the, the, the next level. So the president <laughs> of the league is like, look, we don't have more volunteers. And would you be okay in taking the role as a head coach? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know anything about baseball. Like, I can't talk to even the parents about, like, if they ask me questions, I don't know what to say. <laughs> He's like, look, you're great with the kids, you know, you just need to learn their names. And that's about it. Like, you'll be fine. And I'll be there to support you. And I'm like, okay. I mean, what was the option, right? Like, <laughs> If I say if I said no, then my kid didn't have a coach, you know, so I was like, all right. So my wife was like, oh, my God, this is going to be so funny, you know, and I took like a crash course in YouTube watching, you know, some <laughs> drills. I had to Google what an inning was and I called the dugout a dungeon, <laughs> but, you know, the, the little things. But um we played the first game. And, I mean, we started the first practice, you know, and just trying to make sure that kids didn't get hit in the face with the ball. Like, that was my major <laughs> thing. And then we we played the first game, and we actually won. And the feeling, you know, it's like, oh, my God. Like, I, I think I was more excited than the kids. <laughs> but um, the biggest thing was, you know, when we went in the dog out and everybody was so excited for the first game, I, I you know, I asked them, like, did you have fun today? And everybody's like, yeah. And that did it for me. You know, it's like, this is awesome. You know, I totally get why parents get involved in this type of things. And my wife was just joking yesterday. It's like, are you turning into a baseball bro? And I'm like, it's funny because I honestly still like, we have to meet with the other coaches, you know, before the games and stuff. And they all talk about like, yeah, like, you know, the eating top down, whatever. And, you know, and they have all these terms to talk about things that don't mean anything to me. And I'm just like nodding there. Yeah, sure. You know, but it's such a great community. Everybody, the, the whole league here is ran by volunteers and the work that everybody puts in and, and, and just seeing the kids, you know, it, it's such an amazing experience and definitely, you know, it's one of the things that kids teach you, right? Like from the moment that 
kids come in the picture, you know, and join your family. You just need to be open to learn. That's it. If you're open to learn and you show up every day, you know, to learn something new from them or with them, that's it. Like that's, that's what you have to do. And it's been great. Yeah. It sounds like you stepped so bravely into the unknown, not knowing how, but knowing that you would probably eventually just create another community that the rules of the thing they were doing were not nearly as important as establishing the community and the trust. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm here because there's no one else. I don't know anything about baseball, but I'm going to give my best, you know, and I'm going to show up every day here to catch with them, you know, work with them to build a team and have fun. Like that's the most important thing. Like to me, my aim is for each of the players to show up to the next practice, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's it. Like if they show up, my job is done. Now, are they going to be the next Bryce Harper? I doubt it. You know, I don't know. Maybe (laughs) some of them are extremely good, but I'm, I'm sure they're going to have other coaches down the road that are going to take them to that place. My role here is for them to have fun and remember baseball or this season, at least as a time where they met new people, they laughed, they had fun Mm -hmm. and they were happy. Yeah. That's it. That's what you're doing. I bet that's what you're doing at work too, that you're encouraging people to show up to support each other, to have fun, to enjoy themselves, maybe learn something new. And some are great and some are good enough. Exactly. And everybody's welcome, you know, and everybody brings something, you know, to the table. That's how you build communities. That's how you build great teams. That's how you build a a place where everybody can thrive. Mm. And and, and I think that's the best thing. Well, it sounds like you have some magical recipes for creating some real connections, some relationships, some communities. All of this is great advice. Danielle, you have been absolutely stellar. Thank you so much for sharing all your lessons, sharing your life stories. What an amazing person you are. I'm so I'm so glad that Rachel introduced us. I, I hope, you know, that it's helpful to some people. Again, I am always open to meeting new people and just, yeah. you know, make new friends. I always said, make friends before you need them, right? <laughs> That's so important. <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity to dig into my own thoughts and, and just thinking about these things really makes me feel good. So thank Yay. you for that. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, if someone were to be listening to the podcast and think, okay, I need to reach out to Danielle. How would they do that? What's the best way to connect with you? Probably the best way to reach out to me is LinkedIn. That's where I am building my professional network. And and also I connect with so many wonderful people like you and Rachel. My, uh, you're going to find me there as Daniel Mendez MBA. That's my professional alias, I guess. But uh, the URL is, you know, Mendez Arostica. That's my handle. Awesome. Awesome. My messages are open. So if you don't have a premium account, I think you can reach out directly. Perfect. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. For more good juju, visit cami.coach. C-A-M-I dot coach. <laughs>